Um, let me pray for us. Lord, um, just uh, so thankful to be back together again. Thank you for um, all of the this morning. That's actually pretty beautiful. Um, that uh, there's really no wind, which is great, and um, and just nice to be under these tents uh, and even to be outside with uh, the fresh air. Um, thank you for these heaters that you provided for us uh, this week as it starts to get colder, um, just to, to help us um, uh, stay as comfortable as we can be uh, when we have to be out here. Um, thank you for providing your your word this morning. Thank you for providing this um, this chapter, uh, or I guess, yeah, it's about a chapter of, um, of material. Um, just pray that you just continue to... Um, to hone our thinking, continue to um, challenge our um, our uh, pre uh, uh, pre thoughts <laughs> about um, about the way things are. Um, that we would uh, understand things the way you understand things, and that we would be molded into the, uh, the image of your Son. That our minds would be molded, our minds would be renewed. Um, as we just spend time uh, thinking through these um, these truths, uh, I pray that you'd help me uh, just to get out of the way and and teach this uh, clearly, uh, and allow your Holy Spirit to to work in our lives. Pray this all in your name, Amen. So um, I see there's only only two of us on on Prezi. Um, we'll get there. If you're having trouble, uh, who's who's a tech techie person out here? Mark could probably help you out. M- Mark and Mark. Um, right, right there in, in the middle there, uh, could probably help you out. Um, just real quickly, I, I don't want to take too much time here, but before we get into our, our passage this morning, um, I wanted to, to reiterate, I've tried to each week, um, try to express that, um, that we're building here, right? We're building, Paul is building his argument, um, and that uh, it's not the end of the story, it's the building blocks of the story. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to toss away what, what, what's here, um, because we want to get to the end. Um, it's really important that we, that we understand these things. Um, and uh, and you, you might have thought the last couple of weeks, as we're looking at these things, you might have thought, uh, well, why you know why aren't we talking about the solution as well as the problem, right? Because because Paul's really talking about the the issue, the problem here. Um, and as much as I would like to talk about the solution and like to have taken you know eight hours on a Sunday morning, we could have just stayed here for a full Sunday and and gotten through all the material to get to the solution. I would have loved to get to the solution, but that's not the way it works, right? You guys give me about forty five minutes. Uh, of your time, and I try to honor that as much as I can, um, and so we have to take it in chunks. Um, but the reason why uh, I'm, I'm not speaking about the solution, I'm not even referencing the solution, you've probably noticed that, and the reason for that is Paul doesn't reference the solution. Uh, if he did, I would reference it, but he doesn't. I think he doesn't, he doesn't do that for a reason, and you might think, well, why didn't you just move through it quickly? Because all this ugly stuff is not fun to go through. Why didn't you just kind of gloss over and run through it real quick? And the, the reason I would give is because Paul doesn't gloss over it. Paul gives a full two chapters to this. And I think there's a reason why he does that. Because keep in mind, he's writing to Roman believers, Christians. 
I know a lot of times we think about some of this material and we think it's for the non-believer, and it is for the non-believer, but it is definitely for the believer also. He was writing to the church. And the reason why both non-believers and believers need to understand these truths is, unless we are keenly aware of our own depravity and the, and, and the sin that, lives, that continues to live in, in the flesh, in these bodies, then we cannot fully understand the ideas of grace and mercy. We can't really understand the ideas of sanctification that he'll get to. Because if we think that we're in a place that we're like, uh, we're these moralists, right? We talked about this idea of being, of kind of comparing ourselves to others. And when we compare ourselves to others, we go, well, you know, I'm like 97% good. Well, if you're 97% good, which you're not, and he's trying to convince us that we're not, then, then all we need is about 3% grace, right? All we need is about 3% mercy. All we need to do is trust God with about 3% of our lives. And that is a real problem. Once we get into the, real, the, the principles he's going to get into here in, in a couple chapters, we've got to understand that, we, that there is no good in us, in, in you and me. That us on our own, apart from Christ, in the flesh, there's nothing good there. And that we still, even as believers, we still have the ability to act in depraved ways. And we've got to come to terms with that. And so... He's continuing on kind of with that theme this morning, um, trying to break down our, um, our uh, religiosity, trying to break down our sense of our own goodness. Um, and I hope as we go through this morning that, that as the Spirit works in each of our lives, that he would continue to break down our own sense of our own goodness. Uh, in, to a point that, that honestly we can get to a place where we're completely on level ground with every other human being that has ever walked the earth and, and realize that there is no good in any of us so that we can get to the next step, which we'll talk about starting next week. Let's look at it. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. He says this. He says, But if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So he's speaking here to, and, and I did cut off that sentence, right? This is all just... A, a big long beginning of his sentence. He he's speaking to the Jew, the Jewish people, the Jews that were part of his audience in Rome. Um, and keep in mind, these were Jewish believers. These are those who had trusted the, the Messiah, trusted in Jesus as Messiah. Um, he's speaking to them, and he makes six observations about about these people that were completely legitimate. Jews would have would have said these things about themselves. He, they would have said, we're proud to be Jewish. They did not want to be any other nationality. Of course we want to be Jewish. We're, we're, we're proud about that. It's kind of like us being proud to be an American, right? They were proud to be Jewish. Glad, you can find writings uh, where guys are like, yeah, I'm so glad that, that I was born to the parents I was born to because I'm Jewish. Yes, like that's the best nationality to be on the planet. It's the best ethnicity to be. They would have been proud of that. 
They were proud to have the law, the Old Testament, the Bible of the time. No one else in all of creation was entrusted with God's truth. And they were proud of it. And they took it seriously. I think that's sometimes a wrong perception that we have, is that somehow they didn't take the truths of Scripture seriously. They totally took it seriously. They were serious about that book. Really serious about it. And they were proud that they were serious about it. They were proud about having God. They, 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 um, they boasted in God. They were proud of being God's people. They were proud of, God, of knowing God's will. The Jews had a very clear sense of right and wrong that actually came out of the, the, the ethic principles of the Old Testament. They really understood what was good and what was bad, and they tried to operate their lives on what was good and what was bad. They were a very moral people. In fact, they were regarded by many people in the world as, as being some of the most moral people on the planet, and they pri- prided themselves in that. They... Um, they knew his will. They, they approved of the things that are essential. They were being instructed out of the law. They had been, they'd been taught God's law. They actually had a deep education in the Bible, a deeper education than, than most churches do today with, with their young kids. I mean, we build into our kids all the time. They had a rigorous, rigorous learning uh, uh, system in, in the in the in the Jewish system, and they were they were um, kind of born into that. And they, you know, most uh, Jewish boys had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized before they were thirteen. Uh, well, before that, usually they knew it. They um, so because they knew it, they were confident that they were a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. They knew right and wrong. They knew the truth, and they were they were able to point out problems in other people and say. I have the light. Let me tell you the light. Let me tell you the truth. And they did. They had the truth. And they were, they were able to hold others accountable to that truth. They possessed the embodiment of the truth, the fullest representation of the truth. But I don't know if you noticed, there's a couple of key words in this section that I think Paul emphasizes, he puts out there on purpose. Look back at, uh, at verse 17. It says, You bear the name Jew and rely upon the law. They relied upon their association with God's people. I'm a part of God's people. And they relied on their ethics, their biblical ethics. I, I know what's good. I know what's bad. I usually do the good. And, you know, Paul is not speaking directly to the church today, but I think there's an easy application here that comes straight out of this. That we here in the church today, we possess really the same kinds of things that are being described here. That we come to church every week and we're a part of God's people, right? We have the Bible and we have in it God's truth. And many of us have learned since we were very young kind of the ethics of the Bible, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But just like they made the mistake of thinking that kind of uh, made them okay, because again, they compared themselves to others and said, I'm better than others, we can, we can 
have the same problem. That we understand the truths of Scripture. We understand what's right and what's wrong. And somehow there's a, there's a tendency or a draw to relying on that and saying, you know what, I'm actually a pretty good person because I've grown up in this biblical ethic. And that reliance is a real problem. It's a real problem for them, and it, and it will be a real problem for us if we're reliant upon it also. Because he says this in verse, uh, in verse 21. He says, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. See, these guys would have said, you know, I have, I have a Bible, right? I have the Bible of the time. We would say that today. Most of us have a Bible. Maybe we have six Bibles in our home or whatever. We, we can pull up the Bible instantly on our phones and, and, and we have access to it. But he says, you know this stuff. You, you have the truth, but do you do what it says? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? Well, yeah, but I know it's wrong. So that makes me better than the person who thinks it's okay. Okay. You say that one should not commit adultery. Someone asks you, should you is it okay to sleep with your, your neighbor's wife? No, it's not okay to sleep with your neighbor's wife. Have you slept with your neighbor's wife? Yes. I know it's wrong. So I'm better than the guy who's just doing it all the time doesn't know he's, it's wrong. Really? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? And, the, and this is a rhetorical question. Yes, you dishonor God. And, and for us, like to translate it quickly into our, our time, you know the truth. Many of us have spent lots of time understanding the truth and knowing the truth. Do you live by the truth? Do you do what it says? Well, sometimes, somewhat, a little bit. But I feel bad about it when I don't do the, the, the right thing. So that makes me better than others who don't feel bad about it when they do the wrong thing. And so I'm going to actually stand in judgment of them because I'm better than them. Because even though I make the same mistakes that they do, I know that they're mistakes. And I really don't want to do them. But his point here is not whether you want to do them or you know it's wrong to do them. The question is, do you do them? Do we sin? Is the bottom line question here. Do we break God's instructions when he tells us to do something? Have we ever not done what he said? Do we now not do what he said at times? Well, yes, I do. So who are you and who am I to stand in judgment of others who are doing those same things? 
And usually the, the, the way it works out in our head, at, at least the way it worked out in the Jewish mind at the time that he was calling out, but I think it also works in the Christian mind today is, I possess the truth. I possess good theology. I possess good doctrine. So even if I do mess up from time to time, I'm better than those who don't possess good doctrine. I'm better than those who don't possess the Bible, the truth. And the problem with that thinking that he's trying to call attention to here is knowing the truth cannot keep us from sinning, from our hearts from sinning. Knowing the truth will actually um, encourage us to hide our sin. Really, the difference between most um, of the unbelieving world is that their sin is kind of out in the open, right? Because they don't think it's wrong. They don't really know that it's wrong. They don't really know that it's going to hurt them, that it's not beneficial for them, right? You come over to the, kind of the church side of things, the religious side of things, and, and we know, ha, ah, that's wrong. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't cheat. I shouldn't, I shouldn't look at pornography, right? But the difference is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide that. The rest of the world, they're open about it. Yes, pornography, I, everyone does it. It's okay, right? I'm, I know it's wrong, so I'm still going to look at pornography, but I'm going to hide it away. The problem is knowing truth, and he's going to get to this here in a second, knowing truth does not keep us from sinning. In fact, you can probably relate to this pattern in my own heart. The moment someone draws a line, whether it's a person or God himself, says, Shh, don't do that, is the very moment that maybe I didn't even want to do that, but suddenly now that there's a line, I want to do that. Right? That's our hearts. That's who we are. He goes on, he says, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are transgressors of the law? Now, I know this is a little convoluted. I don't know if you followed all of what he was saying here, but this is the bottom line. It's a really pretty simple uh, thing that he's trying to describe here. Keep in mind, circumcision is just a representation of being a part of the Jewish people. Okay? So he, he says, circumcision has value. Like being a part of the Jewish people, it has value if you practice the law. So if you do that one part of the law, then great. You're going you're gonna to be good because you're doing all of the law at that point, right? If you do all of the law and are circumcised, you're good to go, right? But, he's, but he's, he says, you know what, like circumcision is good, but what about the rest of the law? Like most Jews took that, that circumcision, like that was the thing. Right? All I needed to do was be Jewish, be a part of, the, of God's people, and I'm good to go. The rest of it is kind of mm, optional. And yeah, I, we, we kind of need to do it, 
and we have some sacrifices like set up for it if, if you know, we have a problem with that. But really the most important thing is circumcision. The most important thing is being a part of God's people. But he gives kind of a hypothetical here. And he uses circumcision and uncircumcision, the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people. I'm going to translate it into our, our time and use, use the church. Okay, if, if a man or a woman is a part of the church, right? they're, they're baptized, they pray a prayer, they fill out a commitment card, they um, walk the aisle, they do some of these ritual things that we decide to do to make you a part of the people of God, right? Like, they do that. But then the rest of their lives, they do nothing of what God has instructed of them. Is that person better off? Or the person who has never stepped foot in a church who does all of what God has asked them to do? Everything else that God has asked them to do. That's really his illustration here. Which one is more holy? Is it better to be an unbaptized believer or a baptized unbeliever? Right? Is it better to be someone who's done all the ritual required in the Christian religion, the God, to be a part of God's people, done the ritual, and really never followed anything that Jesus has asked them to do in their life? Don't really care about Jesus, what, what Jesus wants them to do in their life? But they've done kind of that little sliver, that little thing, that, that, that thing that kind of gets you over the hump and makes you a part of God's people. Is that person more holy? Or the person who's never walked the aisle, the person who's never been baptized, but they understand what Jesus wants in their life and they do everything else. And I know that that creates kind of a dichotomy in our minds that, go, that goes, well, that's, is that even possible? Like, how would that even work? Like, how does that person even know the truth? Like, he's just, he's, he's creating a hypothetical, just like I created a hypothetical, which may not be real, may not be possible, but his point is this. He's getting to it. 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You know what he's saying there? What matters is the heart, not ritual. And we have plenty of rituals in the Christian religion. Can we agree with that? And they're not bad things. The, the, the Jewish rituals weren't bad things at all. But he said those things don't matter. What matters is what's going on in the heart. What matters is, is pleasing God, not pleasing your religious friends. Pleasing God, not pleasing the people underneath this tent right now. And, and, and it's really easy, in my estimation, it's pretty darn easy to make us happy with you. Pretty easy. You just really have to kind of hold to a, a few certain, certain things. And if you do kind of you know, engage in certain activities and, and, and make those kind of mistakes, you've got to be sorry for them, right? 
Um, and, and you just got to, you know, be quiet when they're speaking and, and you got to maybe sing the songs when we're singing the songs. And there's a really kind of a low bar of what we expect from one another. And, and, we, and we go, good job. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when that's what we're seeking is, is other people going, you're in. I'm going to give you my approval. And God's looking at your heart and going, Mm-mm. no. All you're doing is trying to make sure you're acceptable in this group of people. Everybody does that, right? I mean, honestly, you could, you, you could be a part of any club, um, any workplace, any, any group that you're ever like a part of, you figure out pretty quickly how to be okay in that group of people, right? You figure out the right things to say and the right things not to say. You know, it's like there, there's just funny things that go on in the church, and, and we kind of laugh about these things, right? But like if someone says a cuss word at church, right? Oh, I cuss all week, but I can't say it at church, right? That's like, right? Because we have these standards of things that people go, good, good. You don't cuss, at least at church, right? Okay. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. He's not trying to tear down the Jewish traditions. He's really not trying to do that. In fact, Paul was a Jew himself and engaged in many of those Jewish traditions. That wasn't the issue. The issue was... When those traditions, when that religiosity, when this ritual stuff that we do as a church, when you lean on that and go, that's what makes me good. That's a real problem. It's a real problem. Because that is not what makes you good because you're not good and neither am I. And no matter how many ritual things that we do, it's not going to somehow make us good. And it's definitely not going to make us acceptable to the Father. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is knowing God's standards and being associated with God's people will not prevent God from holding you, account, holding you to account for your sins. Knowing God's standards and being associated with God's people will not prevent God from holding you to account for your sins. So then at this point, you know, Paul begins to sort of have a conversation with himself, uh, but he's really kind of, it's kind of a Q&A session that he's, he's anticipating the questions that come out of this, that maybe are even circulating in your mind right now. Like, like you know, so is there no benefit from showing up here on Sunday morning? And that's, that's, you know, going back to their time, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Is there no advantage? Is there no benefit from being a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? He says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's a good thing. It's actually probably better for you to be a Jewish Christian in this time than it is for you to be a Gentile Christian. Because so many of the patterns of the Gentile Christian life, they had to break from those patterns, right? We have so many things in Scripture where Paul is addressing different things that are going on in the church that we would think are unthinkable, right? Like uh, church members regularly 
going to temple prostitutes and stuff. Like, we would go, that's abhorrent. Like, who would do that, right? But they were dealing with that because their background was that. They had visited temple prostitutes a lot. And so that now they're a part of the church and they go, well, uh, can I still do that? And Like, he had to address some of those things, right? Where if you're coming from this Jewish context, you, you, you already have, like, like, the biblical ethic in your life. You've grown up with this biblical ethic. What a benefit that is. And you possess the truth. God actually revealed himself through special revelation and gave us his word, Right? And he entrusted it to the Jewish people. What? I mean, that's amazing. And for us, like, again, translating it to the 21st century, we as the church, God's entrusted us with the truth, right? We get here every Sunday and we spend time in the truth. And you're spending time during the week in the truth, studying scripture. What a benefit that is. And these guys who are grown up in the church are hearing the truths all the time being shared. There is a benefit. No question there's a benefit. He goes on, he says, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? This is kind of a weird argument, and probably not one that we would make, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. But he's like, okay, so so God has entrusted the Jewish people with his word, right? And what we, do, what we find when we look at the history of the Jewish people is we find a lot of unfaithfulness. Can we agree? You read through the Old Testament, you're like, oh my gosh, will you guys ever get it, right? You just continue to be unfaithful and unfaithful and unfaithful. And so the question is, did God make a mistake in entrusting the truth to this unfaithful people? In fact, because he entrusted it to this unfaithful people, does that somehow make God unfaithful? And, and his answer to that is, and probably the answer that our minds immediately go to is, may it never be. This, this phrase, we'll see it a few times in Romans, is like this really strong phrase in Greek that means, heck no, like no. Like really, that's why they put a little exclamation point there, the, the translators do. Like no way, don't even think that. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. May, may God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, the, the, this this argument about God entrusting the truth to the Jews and then the Jews being untrustworthy, and maybe that translates back to the fact that maybe God is untrustworthy. He's like, no way. In fact, what it reveals is that God is the one who can judge us. Right? Because he is the faithful one. And so our unfaithfulness doesn't somehow reflect upon God's, you know, on who God is. God is faithful. And our unfaithfulness simply makes it so that he can stand in judgment over us. Because he is perfection, and we are a bunch of liars. Right? He is perfection, he is faithful, and we are a bunch of unfaithful people. He's the one who should judge. In fact, this, uh, this little phrase here comes out of um, Psalm 
51, which I don't know. Yeah, I put it in here. Which says this, against you, you only, I have sinned. This is David speaking to God. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Every time we choose to sin, we're sinning directly against God. And he is the one. And because of that, this perfect one is allowed to judge us. And if you think, oh, well, I don't know that I would have made that argument that maybe God's unfaithful because people are unfaithful, you probably wouldn't make this next judgment either, or this next question. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. This one he's saying, okay, so if, if, um, if our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, right? If we're all the liars, which shows that he is the truthful one, then that's a good thing, right? Let's just keep lying. Because it's going to reveal that God's truthful. He's faithful. Our, our unfaithfulness is going to show how faithful he is. Our unrighteousness is going to show how righteous he is. This is, <coughs> this is the argument. Okay, what do you guys see here in this picture? You don't see anything? That's a tree. You don't see the tree? Ser you guys seriously don't see the tree? Are you looking at the same? You don't see the tree? Oh, you probably need a little bit of darkness to define the tree. Right? You see? That's the argument that he's making. In order to well-define God's righteousness, he needs our unrighteousness to define his righteousness. You guys following this, this idea? And so, if God, if God somehow needs our unrighteousness to define his righteousness, then doesn't that make God wrong in sort of wanting our unrighteousness to reveal his righteousness? Like, it's a weird argument, right? Again, he says, may it never be. Heck no. For otherwise, how will God judge, judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged a sinner? Like, if I'm lying all the time and it shows how truthful he is, then why am I the bad guy? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some have claimed that we've said, which this was a, something people were saying about Paul and his buddies, let us do evil that good may come. He says their condemnation is just. If this is truly what Paul is promoting, that we do evil that good may come, then, then we should be condemned. But that is not what he's saying. See, this is the argument. And, and, and you understand, like this happens a lot in politics. Like people try to twist things that other people say because they're trying to make their own point, right? We see this all the time in our world. The people who were standing against Paul and his buddies were trying to twist what they were saying. This is what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, grace, 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 right? That, that God has given us grace. That nothing that we do, starting to get to that good news that we're going to see in just a little bit, nothing we do has any impact in how God responds to us. 
His righteousness is given to us not based on anything we have done. And, pe- and people outside of Paul's camp would take that and they would say, oh, so you're saying you just want people to just sin it up their whole life. Because it's all just about grace, right, Paul? Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're not listening. You're not listening. And he'll go into those arguments later, but for this, in this context, what he's saying is this. God can judge. And the reason why he can judge, let's go back to the tree for a second, is he is pure white. And so he is allowed, because he is white, he can clearly point out the darkness, right? If he himself was somehow dark, if he himself was somehow tainted, if he himself was somehow in the grays, the darker or lighter grays, then it would be harder for him, or really impossible for him, to be a judge of the dark. Following all that, all that logic, I know it's, it's very convoluted in the way he presents it, but that's the idea. The bottom line is this. The convolutedness, I think, can come down to this point here, which is this. God is trustworthy, and we are not, and he is the right person to judge us. God is trustworthy, and we are not. He is the right person to judge us. All right, he's going to finish with this last little uh, section here, this last little idea. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Well, better than who? Better than these guys who were uh, tearing down Paul and trying to manipulate his arguments. He's like, no, 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 not at all, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Which, let me just say this. I think if you just took verse 9 all by itself to summarize really the middle of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3 of Romans, that could be the sentence right there. That would summarize it all. And if Paul really wanted to be succinct about this, he would have he shrunk all that up to this one verse. Because this is really what he's trying to prove in this whole section. Both Jews and non-Jews are all equally under sin. Fast forward to the 21st century. All Christian churchgoers and all non-Christian, non-churchgoers are all equally under sin. A great illustration I, I heard on this, it's a fantastic illustration, I can't believe I've never heard it before, it's a great, really great, is imagine that you have three guys that, that, are, um, that are at different levels of, in their swim capability. Okay? You've got someone who has never really ever learned how to swim. You've got someone who's a decent swimmer who you know, learned how to swim when they were a kid. They swim around in their pool at home sometimes. And they're decent. They're okay. And then you have an Olympic, tr- Olympically trained swimmer, like the best swimmers in the world type caliber swimmer. All three of those guys. And all three are hopping in the Pacific Ocean trying to swim to Japan. Right? The guy who can't swim gets dropped in to the Pacific Ocean and doesn't last a second. They're just gone. 
drowned dead, right? The pool guy, uh, who's just kind of a recreational swimmer, swims just a long time, is really working really, really hard, and gets about, about 10 miles. Like, he's working hard, and he's 10 miles there. But then he, his arms give out, his body gives out, and he falls and he dies. You have this Olympic swimmer who really knows what he's doing, and he's swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and gets like 40 miles, 50 miles. And then his body gives out, and he drowns, and he's dead. All three are equally what? Dead. Right? Probably equally dead. Is anybody going to be saying, well, at least that guy got a few miles closer? No. But here's the problem. And here's, here's really where, where my challenge is to us as a church and to us, to my own life. We somehow have convinced ourselves of our own goodness. And it comes from comparing ourselves to others. And what Paul is trying to do is strip us all down to brass tacks and help us to recognize that every one of us is equally unfaithful. Every one of us is equally sinful or as equal as the swimmers, right? Sure, yeah, you've done a little more good in your life than some other people, right? But you've all drowned. We've all drowned. We're all underneath the water. We're all dead. Because unless we can all get to brass tacks, low level, there's no good in you and me and in anyone on this planet. Then what we will become, and what many churchgoers become, is comparative moralists. Where we set ourselves up as better than others, and so we treat them in very unloving ways because we're better than them. Oh, those homosexuals. Ugh. It's because you don't understand the depravity of your own heart, and neither do I. You don't think you have that gear? Yeah, you do. We all do. You don't think if you walked in the same shoes as that person that you wouldn't have walked some of the same paths as that person? Yes, of course you would have. Because we are all equally unfaithful. We are all equally under sin. And unless we can get our minds around that, we will never really understand grace. We will never really understand forgiveness that he offers. We will never really understand mercy and justification and, and sanctification. We will never really understand those things. And you might be sitting here this morning as someone who's never really fully understood your own depravity. Like you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never really fully understood that. And that's a limiting factor in your life. Because if you're 97% good, then God's effectiveness in your life can only be that 3%, right? Instead of being the empty hands and the empty cup that we really are and allowing him to do his work in us and to fill us the way that he wants to fill us and to change us the way that he wants to change us. I hope with that backdrop, you will read this next statement not as they are this way, but I am this way. Which is what Paul is saying. 
There is none righteous. Not even one. If you're here this morning and you're like, I'm pretty good. You're wrong. I'm wrong if I think that. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. I sought for God. No, he sought for you. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Wait, Paul, are you telling me I'm useless? Yeah. Yeah. You in in and of yourself, you in your flesh, completely useless. What's a, a blender that doesn't blend? It's trash, right? What's a human created by God for him, for his purposes, who have rejected his purposes for their life? We're completely useless. At least if you consider our intended use, right? What we were meant for. Useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. All we do is pour out the nastiness in our hearts. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. All we do in our flesh is destroy and maim and hurt and leave the wake of that in our in our rearview mirror. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no real fear of God before their eyes. Because if we had a proper fear and respect for that guy, we'd never live the way we live and have lived. So at this point, we might be going, then what's the purpose? Why would God even lay out his law? Why would he even give us principles to live by? If I can't be good by living his principles, and hopefully someone that recently said, I don't need Romans to tell me how depraved I am. I've lived my life. I know how depraved I am. Amen. Right? But... You might at this point be going, he gives us all these principles. Why give us all these principles of, of how to do things, what to do, how to live life? Why give us these principles? Well, he tells us here, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? And we want to say, so that we can be good people, right? So that we can do the things that God calls us to do. No, 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 that's not the purpose of the law. Are you ready for the purpose of the law? so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. The reason why God has given us his principles in Scripture is to destroy us, is to break us down and help us realize that we are completely unfaithful. To convince us of that. So that we would stop saying, I'm a good person, we would go, I got nothing. And that we would all recognize that we are accountable to the perfection of God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no human person by themselves 
will be justified in his sight. Guys, we got to hear that. Especially if you're here, someone here this morning, I've been praying for you. If you are the person who maybe for your whole life has thought, I'm pretty decent and God's going to accept me because I'm a pretty decent person. No. You'll be condemned. Because you're not a decent person. You've been convincing yourself of that because you've been comparing yourselves to others. Stop doing that. It doesn't do any good. Compare yourself to the perfection of his law, of his commands, of his instructions. How you doing? Well, better than most. Comparison doesn't work. Compare yourself to it. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's standards are meant for us to understand our own deep sin, our own deep depravity. To wreck us. Well, why does God want to wreck us? I feel wrecked, right? Last four weeks just feels like a lot of, a lot of negative wreckedness. Why would God want to do that in my life? So that we reach out to Him. We depend on Him. We'll get there. We're not talking about that today. But so that the faithful one is the one at work in our lives. Not the unfaithful one. Me. Bottom of your handout is just a quote. Uh, oh, oh, you need to point on your handout. God's standards reveal that every person is under the power and penalty of sin. God's standards reveal that every person is under the power and the penalty of sin. Bottom of your handout is just a quote uh, from this guy I've mentioned before. Really like some of his writing, the way he writes. Tim Keller, great guy. He says this, Without judgment, salvation has no meaning. Without the reality of God's present and future wrath, the cross is emptied of its glory. Paul's concern is to show that the ground on which we stand, Gentile and Jew, irreligious and religious, rule-breaking and rule-keeping, is level. All face judgment and all deserve wrath. It is only from this ground that we are able to look at the cross and see it clearly. We cannot appreciate who Christ is unless we have first acknowledged who we are. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, these aren't easy truths to hear. And I think part of the reason why they're not easy for me or any of us to hear is that we, we like to construct little monuments in our hearts to our own goodness. We like to think that maybe we've learned something over the years that, that have allowed us to, uh, to be kind of good people, to have some sort of goodness apart from you, a goodness of our own making. And you want to strip that down. You want to deconstruct it. Lord, deconstruct our hearts. Deconstruct the goodness, our self-righteousness that we are so prone to. Help us see ourselves as in complete need, in utter weakness, so that we can pursue you, complete strength, fullness, and get all that we need from you every day. Pray this all in your name.